Good morning again. We're starting to move into the book of Acts and starting to get more and more into the meat of the history that the Apostle Luke has given us. We've spoken of the crisis that the disciples found themselves in after the resurrection of Jesus. It was, on the one hand, a very personal crisis. What's going to happen to us? What does this Jesus thing mean? We followed him for three years. He died. We expected that would be the end. He rose again, taught us for 40 days, and now he's gone again. It was also a national crisis. As we spoke about last week, perhaps you remember, Jewish nationalism was intense at this time. Conflict or partisanship, we might call it today, was at a very high level. The threat to the Jewish state was code red. And after Jesus' resurrection, he taught the disciples about his kingdom for 40 days. And then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he tells them that the Holy Spirit will empower them to witness to him, to witness to Jesus, to the ends of the earth. And then he's lifted up from among them. And the meaning of the ascension is that he is enthroned as as king and lord of everything. And then chapter 1 continues to tell us that they retire to an upper room in Jerusalem, the disciples, and they devote themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. And then Peter, the denier, stands up, and he tells the story of Judas, the betrayer. He says, Judas has turned aside to go to his own place, but that was part of God's plan. And now Peter's there, and he's become the spokesperson. So they choose Matthias to replace Judas because Matthias was a witness to the resurrection, which was essential in those early days of the young church. So the disciples are waiting full of tension, full of wondering, full of conflict, full of perhaps doubt, fear. What's going to happen? Why? And how is it going to work? And then I would like to read for you chapter 2 of Acts. If you have a Bible at home, you can turn to it, or here you can turn to it, or else it will be projected on wall or screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness 
and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. On Pentecost, the disciples are together in one place. And this powerful wind comes. Absolutely powerful. Totally uncontrollable. And when you hear this wind, you should think of the wind, the Spirit of God, that hovered over the face, the waters of the earth, when the creation of the world took place in Genesis 1. And then fire comes down on their heads. And fire and wind are old symbols in Israel with deep meaning. And they go back to Moses. And they go back to Elijah, wind and fire. And out of that fire and wind comes what Willie James Jennings calls the sound of intimacy. Spoken word. Languages that are understood, the miracle of speaking a word, the miracle of understanding a word, language that connects people. When someone speaks my language, I am seen, I am heard, I exist. What does this mean? The onlookers ask. Justice Gonzalez describes the meaning as both leveling and catastrophic. Leveling because the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. There are no more any dividing lines between male and female, between Jew and Greek, between rich and poor. It levels. Everyone receives the Spirit. But it's also catastrophic because there's something in here, a foreshadowing of this last day, of the last time when the empire will be broken and destroyed. And there's all kinds of Old Testament apocalyptic imagery here about the sun and the moon turning dark and red. So we have this great leveling and this great catastrophe. And focused, all coming to Peter's final statement and conclusion to his sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And maybe you remember from last week we commented that this Lord and Christ, the Greek word and the, um, and the Hebrew word, saying that Jesus is king 
Jesus is the anointed one and no other emperor, no other elected official, no other leader of empire takes the place that Jesus does. And when the people hear that they have killed this Messiah and this king, they are cut to their heart and they say, what should we do? They feel themselves lost. They are goners. So they say, what should, they, what should we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized in the name of this Lord Jesus, and let yourselves be saved. Repent, turn away from this adoration of empire. Be baptized, go under the water, go through this death with Jesus, go, go into the grave and come back out to new life and let yourself be saved. Now, what I'd like to posit for you this morning is that all of this story that we've just read and just talked about in these first 40 or so verses, this story of the fire coming down and the wind and the speaking in tongues and the sermon, that's all a prelude to what's coming. If you read what happened in these first 40 verses, it's 41 actually, and don't read the next part, you've missed the point. William Willimon calls his, uh, or t- entitles his chapter on, on his, his chapter in his commentary on, on Acts 2, The Community is Born. He says, The last verses of chapter 2 focus our attention on the main concern of Acts, which is the community. Our focus here is not the wind or the fire or being caught up by the Spirit in some religious experience or the technicalities as rich as they are of the scriptures that Peter brings in his sermon. Our focus is the community because this all leads to community. You can't pull the chapter apart here. These two go together. It's almost as if you could have this last part about the community without the first part, but you can't have the first part Without the, you cannot understand the first part unless you get the second part. Justice Gonzalez, who I quoted earlier, says this, How then, after, after the Holy Spirit came down, how then were Christians to live in the Roman Empire as citizens of God's reign? This is one of the central themes of the entire book. Now that Jesus is king and he's given the Holy Spirit, we get to the point. How are we as Christians, or how were those Christians to live in the Roman Empire as citizens of God's kingdom? And I'm sure most of you are pretty familiar with what's listed here in this fellowship of the believers, as my Bible calls it, verses 42 to 47. They were devoted to four things. The apostles' teaching 
the fellowship, that very uh, ubiquitous Greek word all through the New Testament, koinonia, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And this devotion, this connecting with this risen Christ, led to awe coming upon every soul, wonders and signs being done through the apostles, the believers holding all things in common, selling their possessions, distributing proceeds to any who had need, gathering daily, receiving their food, eating together with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with the people to the extent that their number was growing daily. And again, remember, this is in a time of tension, particularly political tension. This was almost like an underground group. When you joined this group, you let everyone know that you were joining the group that was following this Messiah who was king, and no one else was king. It was a political statement. And these people came together, and they fellowshiped, and they listened, and they taught. And they shared their possessions and they cared for each other. There was wonder and there was awe. And they rejoiced. So here's my question. What is there in our churches? I'll just take America. What is there in any church you know? And I'll even get more specific. I'll zoom into 19008. What is there in Trinity Church that looks at all like this community? Is this community, this description of this community, prescriptive? We have to live like this. This is command. Or descriptive? Descriptive in the sense that we don't have to follow the details as long as we get the spirit of the thing. And my thought is I don't really care that very much, very much about the answer to that question. Regardless of the details of what a church does in a particular context, the community of Jesus' followers is supposed to be a beachhead of the kingdom of God in the midst of empire, driven to a radical life of discipleship that draws others in and that cares for one another and that cares for those outside. whatever the specific cultural, contextual outworkings of that are. And I would like to suggest to you that our churches don't look very much like this. We just don't. We're individualistic. We can survive really without having this community. We're okay. I can follow my Christian life. I can lead my Christian life. I can follow Jesus on my own. 
willing to write a check to help organizations, help charities. This awe, this wonder, this tension of living as a colony, as a beachhead of God's kingdom in the midst of empire, it's not really a part of what we do. Sometimes it's all kind of boring. Sometimes it's even pretty easy to nod off. And I was, as I was thinking yesterday, okay, how do, how do I make this practical? What do, what do, what's the practical application of this? And I ran a little bit into a wall. Assuming that I'm somewhere right in saying our churches don't reflect this community very well. There are two ways I can respond to that. The first one, if I had to choose, would probably have my choice, and that's to rant and rave (laughs) and holler and scream and yell at all of us. Why is it that we don't do this? And I could go on probably for quite a while. The other temptation, the other option is to stand up here as some kind of a visionary leader and give a new vision for the church, especially post-COVID, that would inspire, that would cause you to say, hey, let's follow this guy, let's go. Let's radically change how we do things. Let's set up a new community, let's get a mission and a vision. in the hope that that would result in some kind of a mega growth and that I'd get to write a book about it. But as I ran into that wall yesterday, I just felt I couldn't do either of those things, although I've done them just a little bit, passively, aggressively. I think we need to do what the early church did before Pentecost, before this community started, and that's pray. The survival, I'm more convinced of this than than I have ever been, the survival of the Western church is on the line, and it's not because we're getting attacked from outside. Don't misunderstand me. We are losing it ourselves because our theology is bad, much of it, and our practice is bad, much of it. We don't have this, what the book of Acts had. We are killing ourselves. There's not much I can do about that. There's not much you can do about it, either singular or collective, except pray. Because it's going to have to be God's work.